reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts. A look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. All right, folks, let's begin today's show. The Second Amendment Preservation Act endangers Missourians. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators struck a deal on gun control this past weekend, but it may not be enforced in Missouri because of the Second Amendment Preservation Act, also known as SAPA. The group of 20 senators, including 10 Republicans, which, if all Republicans and everyone who signed on to the deal vote in favor of it, is enough people to beat a filibuster. If passed, the deal will provide sweeping reform to current federal gun control laws, but Missouri police may not be allowed to enforce the new laws. SAPA is a state law that fines law enforcement agencies up to $50,000 if they enforce federal gun control laws that conflict with the state's loose gun regulations. So even though Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri, you know, the state's only effective senator, has signed on to the deal, our law enforcement agencies will continue to labor under restrictions. Blunt pairs up with Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. They are sponsoring the mental health portion of the bill package called the Excellence in Mental Health Act, which would expand mental health and addiction services by providing every state funding for certified community behavioral health clinics. Data from the Department of Health and Human Services show that people who receive help from community clinics are more than 60% less likely to go to the emergency room or jail. The bipartisan gun control deal will also do several other things, expanding background checks for people under 21 purchasing a gun, implementing federal red flag laws, and incentivizing states to implement red flag laws, increase the penalties for gun trafficking, provide funding for school violence prevention training in primary and secondary schools, and expanding the law preventing those convicted of domestic abuse from buying guns by closing the quote-unquote boyfriend loophole. This loophole that they seek to close allows some individuals convicted of domestic violence to have guns if their victim is only a dating partner instead of a spouse. But in Missouri, police won't be able to take action. SAPA would prevent local and state law enforcement from enforcing the new law unless a similar regulation were enacted by the state legislature. And as it stands now, Not only does Missouri not have a state law addressing the boyfriend loophole, state legislators in 2016 voted to allow convicted domestic abusers to carry firearms. The Republican-controlled General Assembly in 2016 overrode Democratic Governor Jay Nixon's veto to enact a law allowing Missourians to carry concealed weapons without a permit. It also removed gun safety training classes and criminal background checks, effectively eliminating screenings for past offenses and creating what is now called in Missouri the domestic violence loophole. In Missouri, most men who kill women use a firearm. In 2019 analysis on men killing women, they found that 81% of female victims were killed with a gun in Missouri. In 2021, 37 people were killed in domestic violence homicides, and over 4,000 aggravated domestic assaults occurred. In Kansas City, 13 people were killed in domestic violence incidents. A lawsuit in state court against the Second Amendment Preservation Act is moving slowly. In April, the Missouri Supreme Court ruled the counties may challenge the constitutionality of the law sending the case back to the circuit court after a Cole County judge earlier blocked the suit. Oral arguments are scheduled for July 6th in a federal lawsuit filed by the United States Department of Justice against Missouri. The DOJ is seeking a summary judgment, asking a judge to rule against the law without a full trial. In the meantime, Missouri law enforcement remains hamstrung and its citizenry less safe. 
Farmers seek fairness in the fields. In March of 2010, approximately 800 people gathered in Ankeny, Iowa, for a public event hosted by the Departments of Justice and Agriculture on competition in agriculture. The meeting followed an outpouring of 15,000 public comments on the topic of consolidation in the seed, livestock, dairy, poultry, and food retail industries. At the event, a Missouri farmer stood up and declared, we've waited long enough for justice in the heartland. There were yips and claps. The energy in the room felt earnest, given the questions at hand. For one, who controls the seed market, the foundation of our food supply? In total, the agencies hosted five of these workshops across the United States that year. Farmers, ranchers, farm advocacy organizations, businesses, and consumers showed up in large numbers to listen and provide testimony reflecting their plight, skyrocketing input prices, fewer options in the marketplace, as as well as egregious production and licensing contracts. The events were historic, lending confidence that change was on the horizon. But the hope was short-lived. The public's investment, in the form of tax dollars, time, and courage, resulted in no meaningful action, most notably in the seed trade, one of the most concentrated and privatized industries in agriculture. In the decade that followed, market consolidation only worsened. Today, four transnational firms control more than 60% of the global commercial seed market, a concentration ratio that far exceeds the benchmark for healthy competition as established by agricultural economists. Now, with renewed focus on competition concerns in the seed industry, American farmers are once again asking themselves if they should be speaking up to bring fairness back to their fields. Three months ago, the United States Department of Agriculture launched an inquiry asking for public comments on competition concerns in the seed industry as they relate to intellectual property rights, or IPR. The agency is examining impacts on farmers, plant breeders, independent seed companies, tribal members, and other historically underserved growers, as well as society at large. This inquiry stems from President Biden's July 2021 executive order on promoting competition across the American economy. That this inquiry was initiated by the executive office is notable, but even more remarkable is the primary focus on seed. A targeted examination of seed trade through a combined antitrust and IPR lens is long overdue. Understanding the tension between antitrust and IP laws is especially relevant to seed. While other agricultural sectors, such as agrochemicals and fertilizers, could also be described as an oligopoly, seed is unique from every other input market. It is a living resource. Seeds are not manufactured in a facility, but represent generations of natural evolution both alongside and in absence of human intervention. In this way, grower decisions pertaining to seed are not only economical, but also ethical and cultural. As the seed trade continues to consolidate, the diversity of seed in the marketplace decreases. A single patent can cover the plant, seed, future generations, genetic traits, crosses with other varieties, and methods used to produce it. Owners of utility patents, therefore, have far-reaching control over access and use of their protected seed and commonly restrict breeding, research, and seed saving, the very practice that established the diversity of domesticated crops we enjoy today. Hundreds of farmers have been sued for saving patented seed, resulting in million-dollar judgments and bankruptcy. In other words, the entities controlling much of the seed supply are limiting competition from angles beyond their foothold of power in the retail market. You cannot compete in product development if you cannot access the parts. Meanwhile, the Biden administration and Congress have all the parts they need to affect meaningful policy change. Antitrust laws can be enhanced and more strongly enforced, while IPR laws and policies can return to their original intent of incentivizing innovation 
not the monopolization of markets. Denying patents on products of nature is also critical. In fact, it was never Congress's intent to award utility patents for plants. Congress long argued that sexually reproducing plants should not be awarded utility patents for fear of curtailing innovation, threatening the free exchange of genetic resource and increasing market concentration. A 1966 Congressional Committee report confirms that while its members acknowledge the valuable contribution of plant and seed breeders, it does not consider the patent system the proper vehicle for the protection of such subject matter. These conversations led to the passing of the 1970 Plant Variety Protection Act, otherwise known as PVP. A PVP certificate is not a patent, but provides exclusive marketing rights for 20 years to plant breeders for their new varieties. Congress was very deliberate when including two exemptions that protect competition and future innovation. The law requires these varieties to remain accessible for breeding purposes and protects a grower's right to save PVP protected seed for replanting on their own farm. The law served as a compromise between those who wanted full ownership rights of plant varieties and genetics and those who wanted all plant varieties to remain fully accessible without restrictions on breeding, growing, or distribution. Everything changed with a Supreme Court decision in 1980 when a 5-4 decision allowed a patent on an artificially constructed microorganism. The effect of this decision and others that followed has been a patent and trademark office that now views some products of nature as human-made sums of parts, opening the floodgates to patents on seeds, plants, and genetic traits. Had the court honored the congressional record on this topic, farmers would be operating within a very different seed system. It is not too late to change course. The Biden administration can align itself and support American farmers who are still waiting for justice. There is an urgent need to sow fairness back into our laws and policies as they relate to seed. The administration would be wise to choose that path. Kansas and Missouri fail on medical debt. According to researchers, Kansas and Missouri do not do enough to protect their residents from racking up medical bills. A new project from the University of Arizona and the University of Utah and the Pew Charitable Trusts dig into consumer protections for people getting medical care. Both states have weak policies, the report says, leaving patients vulnerable to high bills from doctors, hospitals, and laboratories that can quickly add up. Gabriela Elizondo Craig, a postgraduate fellow at the University of Arizona College of Law, says states don't need to wait for Congress to act. There are so many important protections that can be put in place by the state legislatures. Of all debt collection lawsuits, two out of three is a medical debt lawsuit in this country. A few things that Kansas and Missouri don't do that researchers say would help. Preventing hospitals and others from sending a bill to collections agencies while a patient is still negotiating the amount, making incremental payments on it, or appealing an insurance decision. Requiring hospitals to tell patients about charity care. Making clear that health care providers must wait for a specific period of time before suing a patient over outstanding balances. Stopping health care providers from selling debt. Regulating the price of medically necessary care. Kansas also hasn't expanded Medicaid, which the authors say would help, and it lacks any state-level protections against surprise bills, although a new federal law shields many people from that unwelcome phenomenon with caveats. In recent years, research suggests Kansans ran into surprise bills more often than people in most other states. Americans fear the unpredictable prices of medical care so much that many forego it. Debt from healthcare now saddles so many people that researchers at Harvard and Stanford universities found it had become the main driver for the collections industry. Living in the Midwest, 
which in many cases offers better living costs than coasts, doesn't shield Kansans from high prices. This year, a Commonwealth report found that Kansas and Missouri count among the five states where people with work-based insurance face average premiums and deductibles topping $9,000 a year. Year after year, American healthcare spending continues to grow at a fast clip, much faster than inflation. The Healthcare Cost Institute has found that the main reason is simply that hospitals and other places hike the price. In other words, the increase in spending can't be explained by Americans going to the doctor more often. Meanwhile, the Rand Corporation think tank has found evidence of surprisingly high prices at some Kansas City hospitals, among the highest in the country. New federal rules requiring hospitals to make their prices public are meant to help, but many Kansas hospitals have been slow to comply. Folks, before we hit the break, I want to inform you that we're taking a brief layover with candidate John Keeney. John is running for election to the Missouri State Senate to represent District 26. I recently ran into John at the Warren County Democrats meeting for the month of June and wanted to give him some time on the show. John, welcome to the Flyover View. How are you doing today? Doing good. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It was good to see you the other day, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you for a minute and to maybe be heard by a couple people. Yeah, again, thank you very much. So first question, just to jump right in, uh, why have you decided to put yourself through the grueling reality that is running for office? Yes, and that that was the first question. And that is the first question. Why? Okay, let's break this down real quick. I'm a straight white guy. So clearly not exactly for me. But in my life, I have a black wife, black kids, huge black family. I have gay family. I have all different kinds of friends that have a, just a wide variety of people I've known throughout my life, in my life now, and so forth and so on. And they're just not well represented in our government. They have issues at, uh, let's say, in healthcare. They have issues at work, et cetera, et cetera. These policies that uh, what I've learned after 15 years of kind of being in the foster business and behavioral health and stuff is that these policies that they're passed at the state level and the national level affect a whole lot of people, most people, and a lot of people just don't know it. So that's what I'm here for. You know, it's it's tough. I'm in a red district. I, this is my third time running, and I'm represented by people who don't represent my family, and they don't represent a lot of families like mine. That's why I'm here. Well, and that's great. And uh, you delved into your background a bit there, uh, but what else are you coming from in your life professionally that makes it wise for you to run for office? It's a good question. I've actually been a professional musician for 35 years. So well, I guess I'm old enough to do that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little embarrassing sometimes. No, you know what? I've been a self-employed and, and you know, contract employee and stuff for 35 years. And I've traveled this country many times. I hire people. I've been the guy being hired. Not to mention the fact that when I was younger, I worked in bars and restaurants as well, like a lot of folks do during those college years. And so I understand what it's like to be an employee. I understand what it's like to employ. And I understand what it's like to file lots and lots of 1099s and schedule C's and so <laughs> forth and so on, as well as getting a W-2. So that is my background, but 15 years ago on September 23rd, 2007 at 12.03 a.m., that was when the path to being a foster advocate, a foster provider, now a legal guardian, an adoptive parent, it all started at that moment when we had a family issue and my wife, Michelle, and I stepped in to deal with a very serious family issue. And in, in my struggles to try to get help for people who had been through a lot of stuff over the years, this is working with courts, behavioral institutions, uh, you know, doctors, schools, et cetera, et cetera. I discovered that state policy a lot of times, not to mention federal policy, is really what is jamming up 
people who really need services from getting services. So I'd say the last 15 years has really been defined. And what brought me into politics is, is really behavioral health, foster care, stuff like that. Well, and on your website, it says you're actually running to focus on people over profit. So explain a little bit more of that and what that means to you. Absolutely. Well, you know, people over profit, I didn't make it up, but it really applies in the state. It applies in politics. It applies to my family and so forth and so on. You'll see in healthcare where profits are put over the people. You'll see in employment where profits are put over people. In so many cases in politics, in policy, money comes first and then people secondarily. I'm running in a rural district once again. And when you're looking at CAFOs or the commercial farming industry, we have a very few commercial farms in the state, but they are owning the agriculture industry. They're owning the policy to it, the agriculture industry, for instance. So while there are 90 some odd thousand farms in Missouri, about five or 600 of them are controlling the narrative in our state legislature. So the people over profit issue just hits home for so many people in so many ways. You could be you know, Democrat, Republican, young, old, whatever. We have people in skilled nursing. We deal with this stuff all the time. We dealt with behavioral health providers, deal with this stuff all the time. Some of them have been shut down. I know that you folks have shared some stuff about some behavioral health uh, facilities, so, so to speak, in the state mm-hmm. that have just gone awry. People put making money over taking care of people. And you know, I just, I'm not for that. I'm, the people in my life are the most important things in my life above and beyond a paycheck or a new car or whatever it is, a campaign donation. You know, I'm a Democrat. I don't get that much anyway. So I have to fight tooth and nail <laughs> to get people to really, you know, help with my campaign to begin with because of the nature of politics in Missouri. Yeah. And I know you touched on a lot of issues there and having seen your website, and I would suggest anyone who wants to know more about you to check that out. Lots of folks don't always have time to look at every issue when they're voting. So for you, what is like the one major issue that you will tackle if you're elected? I knew that question was coming and I actually (laughs) thought about it all morning, but two things, I say two things are going to one. Number one, people over profit, overarching, every demographic. Number one, when you go to the state legislature, you have to fight and let the welfare of the people be the supreme law. That's what it says right up there, etched in stone. Let the welfare of the people be supreme law because while there are thousands of bills that are sponsored every year and they go through uh, committees, they go back and forth between the House and the Senate. Uh, This year where we had 66 bills went to Governor Parson's desk this year in the 2022 session here. These bills touch on people in so many ways. So it's hard to say, focus on, what I'm focusing on is the welfare of the people who I would be elected to serve. Whether they are trans or have a trans kid, whether they own a farm, they own a business, they work for a business. These people all deserve representation. We have women's reproductive rights on the chopping block, maybe in a month or two. We can codify some of these rules. We can fight back and defend women's reproductive rights. We can fully fund our schools. We can't say only women's reproductive rights and not schools. All these issues have to be addressed. And and you're right. There's so much to think about, but I think people don't understand how much of their lives are affected by state policy. Like I said, there are thousands of bills that are sponsored every year that touch on dozens, if not hundreds of different subjects that affect the lives of most each and every Missouri citizen. And then there are these little things like the the things about trans. We have four trans women athletes in the state, and this is just eating up oxygen in politics in our state right now. And they are attacking people that I know. And I see kids going to the Capitol fighting for their well-being while they're fighting other issues just Being a trans kid, they have to fight state legislators who just insult their intelligence and insult their being in the people's house. And we have to defend them. 
the elderly, everybody, workers. I live in a middle-class neighborhood. The middle class is shrinking. We have to fight for the middle class. We have to make sure people have opportunity, they get justice, and that we rebuild the parts that need to be rebuilt, and that we support the parts that need to be supported. I mean, it's. I wish there was one issue. <laughs> no. I'm sorry, but it's hard for me to nail stuff down to one issue because there's so much going on that affects so many people. No, and I feel you. And that, that's a tough question, try to narrow things down to one. And I know I completely feel you on understanding some of the nuance of state legislature and how much it affects. Until I started doing this, I honestly had no idea. So uh, it, it's good to see you going in there trying to fight for that. Uh, so yep. let's just to wrap things up. How can folks find you if they want to help? Well, I'm, I'm hard to miss. Number one, <laughs> <laughs> I'm everywhere in, in the virtual world. My website is johnkey.com. That's www.johnkiehne.com. If you just want to give and support the campaign, you can go to kiehne2022.com. That's kiehne22022.com. You can find me on social media at johnkeedy 4 mo Pretty much everywhere. I'm busier in some places than others. I admit my TikTok game is really weak. So at some point, I'd like to throw some stuff up there other than like one video. But, you know, you could call me at area code 636-324-3570. That is the campaign phone. And I may or may not pick it up. You could text me. I'm always looking for insight, support. If you want to help the campaign, Senate District 26 includes Eureka and the counties of Franklin, Warren, Gasconade, and Osage. So that's my general area. Oh, wow. Look at that. I didn't even have to ask you for where you represent. <laughs> I thought that would be a good thing for folks to know. Uh, any upcoming events? I do not have anything on my personal calendar. I'm showing up at a lot of stuff around the district. So um, uh, what do we have? We have the, something in Osage on Friday. I was just over in Rolla, actually, which is not necessarily my district, but we organized a uh, March for our lives over in Rolla for last weekend, which was awesome to participate. Uh, I am looking for partners to organize things in our communities, in these rural districts to show up. Some county committees, if you know what a county committee is, some are stronger than others. If you know about county clubs, some are stronger than others. But I've met a lot of people in this area that, that their numbers may be few, but they would really like to do things. And I'm looking for more people who want to organize, who want to plan events in Senate District 26, around Senate District 26, so we don't have that many candidates uh, for you know for the state legislative office. We actually only have, in my district, which is four counties in Eureka, there's only one candidate for state legislative office besides me in that entire uh, Senate district, and she lives in Washington County. It's Sally Brooks. It's running for HD 118, which is a little bit of Franklin County down in the south. So you know, I look forward to anybody who wants to participate. If you have a question about politics or you're looking for a candidate, anything, feel free to call me, text me, find me online, info at johnkey.com, by the way. You can try that too, and I'd be glad to help in whatever way I can. Well, thank you again so much, John. Thanks for taking the time to join me on Fly Review today, and best of luck out there. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me today, and I hope to see you sometime soon again. Me too, John. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for a talking politics session on the week that was and diving into elections, legislation, and public policy. You can also join Adam on most Tuesday and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, 
featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On any given week, he could be chatting up a politician, a farmer, a scientist, you name it. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports with The Delta, featuring Nicholas and Christina Linke, and High Country, Sean Diller's Western political updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. And don't forget, for full access to the Last Call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a pod head today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Mass shooting scare in Kansas City. Wednesday morning officials for at least eight schools announced closure for their normal summer school and child care activities due to a credible threat of a mass shooting. Reporting on Twitter from Ray Daniel of KSHB41 in Kansas City continued to update as on Tuesday night, Blue Springs, a large suburban Kansas City district, announced closure due to the threat after corroboration by the FBI of a dangerous suspect whose whereabouts were unknown. The threat a social media post then led several surrounding school districts in Independence, Lee Summit, Fort Osage, Grain Valley, Odessa, Lone Jack, and Oak Grove, along with some area private schools as well, all in the KC metro area, to suspend the normal daily activities. Others announced increased security measures. The threat was of an unspecified mass shooting. A judge temporary blocks some Texas investigations into gender-affirming care for trans kids. Following up on last week's story on the state of Texas's war on transgender children, an Austin judge has temporarily stopped the state from investigating many parents who provide gender-affirming care to their transgender children. Travis County District Judge Jan Seufer issued a temporary restraining order last Friday in a lawsuit filed on behalf of three families and members of PFLAG, an LGBTQ plus advocacy group that claims more than 600 members in Texas. Brian K. Bond, executive director of the group, applauded the decision to stop what he called invasive, unnecessary, and unnerving investigations, saying, let's be clear. These investigations into loving and affirming families shouldn't be happening in the first place. A reminder, gender-affirming care is recommended by all major medical associations to treat gender dysphoria, the distress that someone can feel when their gender identity does not align with their biological sex. Water crisis in Colorado. The West climate change-driven mega drought has plunged the nation's two largest reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, to historic lows. Camille Kalimlim Towton, chief of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, states her bureau is undertaking short-term actions to prevent Lakes Mead and Powell from reaching Deadpool, which is when water levels get so low that they cannot flow past a dam. This may include between 2 million acre-feet and 4 million acre-feet of additional conservation just to protect critical levels in 2023. John Ensminger, general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which supplies the Las Vegas area, said at a Senate hearing, we are 150 feet away from 25 million Americans losing access to the Colorado River, and the rate of decline is accelerating. Poison hemlock blooming in Illinois, posing health threats. In Illinois, a man was exposed to poison hemlock, and three weeks later, he is still recovering from the painful effects it left on his body. Michael Leary says, We had a couple of poison hemlocks in the fields last year, and this year, it's everywhere. Leary was using a mower when he was exposed to poison hemlock. He did not experience an immediate reaction, but the day after he was exposed, he started seeing spots on the tops of his feet. Then it quickly spread across his entire body. University of Illinois Extension educator Ryan Pencow states its plant parts are highly toxic. Ingestion of even a small amount can result in death. 
Poison hemlock looks a lot like Queen Anne's lace, which is also known as wild carrot. Both plants have abundant clusters of white flowers at the tips of tall stems. To tell the difference between the two, poison hemlock is flowering now, while wild carrot flowers closer to midsummer. Poison hemlock can also easily be recognized by its smooth, purple-spotted, hollow stems and pungent odor when leaves are crushed, whereas wild carrot's crushed leaves have an odor similar to a carrot, and its stems are hairy, green, and not hollow. Governor Bashir announces Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee. Governor Andy Bashir has announced the 17 members of the Team Kentucky Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee, who will help him explore legalizing medical marijuana through executive action after the state legislature failed to push a bill through at this year's session. In a statement, the governor says polling suggests 90% of Kentucky adults support legalizing medical cannabis, while at the same time, far too many in our state who could benefit from it are suffering. It is simply time that something more is done. I want to make sure that every voice is heard as I'm weighing in on executive action that could provide access to medical cannabis in the Commonwealth. During the 2022 General Assembly earlier this year, a restrictive bill to legalize medical marijuana did pass the House, but it failed to even receive a committee vote in the Senate. During that session, Republican leadership expressed skepticism about medical marijuana. There are now 38 states that have medical marijuana access. Well, folks, that's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you for joining us. If you have a story you feel I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from KSHB, KCUR, The Hill, ABC, The Kansas City Star, The Texas Tribune, Axio, LEO Weekly, and WGN9. Thanks for listening. The Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See y'all next week.